بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقهوا قولي Thank you Professor Shpirl Thank you to Zawas Thank you to the Ibn Arabi Society and to Richard for organizing and hosting this Thank you for this introduction and um, thank you to you the audience um, for allowing me this privilege to be able to speak to you about um, my uh, research topic, which I had finished here. Um, I will be giving you a very brief overview, a very brief overview over about this topic. Um, I'll try to keep this as short as possible, and inshallah, hopefully we can develop this or unpack this through dialogue, through discussion, try to leave as much time as possible for discussion. Um, my research was about um, Frederick Nietzsche, um, the German 19th century, 20th century philosopher. And um, what I was trying to argue, and it was only an argument, it is only an argument, is that this particular philosopher has something very relevant to say about religion, and I think arguably, by extension, very relevant to say about Islam, particularly Islamic modernization, and a special, a very important crisis that he argued throughout his writings will be unmanifesting itself, being uncovering itself throughout this experience of modernity. And my argument is that this crisis, which he refers to as nihilism, is equally important to the modern Islamic context. So he has something very important to say about this crisis, which will be experienced by Muslims undergoing modernization. But equally important, I argue, is that Nietzsche has also something to say about how to overcome this crisis of nihilism. And arguably, it is here which we return back to Ibn al-Arabi's thought. Ibn al-Arabi arguably provides a system of thought, a religious system of thought, a philosophy, which can allow this overcoming of nihilism. It represents a return to God after the death of God, which is um, the definition of this term, anatheism, the return to God after the death of God. But what I focus upon is how exactly does God die within the Islamic context? And again, it is particularly within the intellectual modern Islamic context where now this crisis is in the process of unveiling itself. As he argued, it had unveiled itself in the modern European context. So he has something very important to say about this crisis of nihilism. 
and how to overcome this nihilism, which he actually did not, he was not able to clearly or to be able to articulate. How do you overcome nihilism? Maybe Ibn al-Arabi has something very crucial to say about how nihilism can be overcome. Um, to appreciate this crisis, one needs to look back towards this experience, this concept of modernity. What exactly is modernity? An experience that all humans are undergoing, are modernizing. Um, and hence, it is particularly relevant nowadays to Muslims as well. For that, need to look back to previous philosophers of modernity, particularly Kant. People usually ask, you know, how do you define modernity? What are the milestones or thresholds of modernity? The uh, religious reformation, the religious beginnings of modernity with the uh, reformation, the cultural beginnings with the um, renaissance, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, but intellectually speaking, people look back to Kant, and he defines the Enlightenment as that intellectual threshold of modernity. Um, a contemporary German philosopher, Habermas, he um, says that the project of modernity is inaugurated by and initiated by Immanuel Kant. The threshold of modernity is shaped by Kantian philosophy. Um, Kant more specifically installed reason. Reason as the supreme set of judgment before which anything that made a claim to validity had to be justified. Setting up reason as the highest authority. And it was that which Nietzsche was very critical of. And it is that which he argued will give rise to this crisis of nihilism, this very modern crisis, which was covered up throughout the history of humanity. But now, in modernity, it is unfolding. It's being unveiled, this crisis. Um, this threshold of modernity, this philosophical threshold of modernity, setting up reason as the supreme judge, is one that is also reflected in the modernization of Islamic thought. And I'll come back to this shortly. But more specifically, it is within ethics that you see this supreme reason assuming that supreme authority more authoritative than any other previous authority and there mainly religion was the previous authority here with Kantian philosophy you what you might be able to describe as a paradigm shift an ethical paradigm shift, a meta-ethical paradigm shift. What is it that now determines this concept of morality? Is it reason 
or is it religion? By extension, revelation. And here you have quite categorically with Kantian philosophy upholding reason as the source of morality. It would be easy to show how common human reason, says Kant, knows very well how to distinguish in every case, in every case that comes up, what is good and what is evil. On its own behalf, morality in no way needs religion, whether objectively, objectively as regarding willing or subjectively as regards capability, but is rather self-sufficient by virtue of pure practical reason. It's quite explicit. Now reason determines morality. You don't need religion anymore, which was the crux of the criticism of Nietzsche had um, against this threshold, the criticism he had against modernity, which now arguably makes others refer to him as the earliest postmodern thinker, that thinker who will go back and be critical against the foundations of modernity. And he says that it is nihilism, this crisis is so fundamental, it is an existential crisis, but more so it is an ethical crisis. It's a crisis by which having established reason as the source of morality, now reason turns against its own foundation and undermines its own foundation. And here he argues that this happens in the sphere of morality. And for Nietzsche, a very crucial aspect of his argument is that morality in itself, as a concept, as a category, has always been a religious concept. Religion always determined morality. Morality is a religious concept. You can't have morality without religion. But what happens now is that, in, uh, if we have time, go back to give you very specific examples. Now, morality, based upon reason, turns against religion, undermines its own foundation, which was very characteristic of what was happening in modernity in European societies at that time, was that societies were becoming more and more secular. Again, that becomes um, very problematic how one defies it, but religion was no longer the highest authority. And now he defines this concept of nihilism as being that self-devaluation um, of the highest values. Now the highest values, these interpretations by which humans award meaning to their lives, here the highest values being truth, but also particularly moral values, values like the good, turn against themselves, turn against their foundation. And he says when that happens, morality, these values can no longer be justified. This is nihilism, according to Nietzsche. We can no longer justify what truth is, what these values, like good and evil, 
reason has turned against it, their religious foundation. And um, later philosopher Heidegger, he will say that one of the most famous formulations of this crisis of nihilism is that famous um, statement in the parable of the madman when Nietzsche says that a madman walks into the, uh, into the market shouting, declaring that God is dead. But equally important it is how and why did God die? It's not a, a statement of atheism. He's not saying that God does not exist. But how does God die? He is actually murdered by those common human beings, us, us moderns. We have murdered God. How? It is through upholding these highest values of morality. In modernity, even though people were no longer religions, they were still nevertheless very moral. It now becomes the highest values. It becomes the highest meaning. People are still very, very moral. And he says, well, now that no longer exists. And uh, Heidegger says that this represents um, um, the, the statement that God is dead represents a, th uh, an, uh, a, a formulation of what exactly nihilism means. And it's a very ambiguous you know, term, concept, um, process, nihilism. Um, and Nietzsche was very, very um, non-systematic in how he describes this, this crisis. Uh, nevertheless, he was even more ambiguous about how to overcome this crisis of modernity, this crisis of nihilism. Um, later scholars said that actually it is impossible, it was impossible for Nietzsche to be able to articulate how one can overcome nihilism. Nevertheless, he did highlight, he did allude towards key features, key criteria, characteristics of this project of the overcoming of nihilism. Criteria um, predominantly find by this concept that the union of opposite values, which we heard earlier on was a key feature of um, those mystical philosophies. And again, quite famously, he argues that it is the overman who comes to, who, who overcomes nihilism, um, who is now able to unite these values these opposing values, which values like good and evil. And um, he has a, state, uh, a statement. He gives an example of um, this overman. He is the Roman Caesar with the heart of Christ, uniting opposite values. Another very key feature of this project of the overcoming of nihilism is that it is affirmative, this worldly affirmation of that, of everything, everything including that which is most objectionable, morally objectionable, affirmation to the highest degree, to the degree that one not only affirms 
everything, including that which might be considered to be morally objectionable, but to love it. This concept of love. And he um, has these doctrines by which he um, attempts to articulate, uh, describe this, this affirmation, this thought experiment of the eternal recurrence of the same. And more specifically, this love of fate, that one loves one's fate regardless of how detestable, how much suffering, how evil, everything is affirmed to the extent of love. Key features of this project of the overcoming of nihilism. Now, I argue that this is occurring, this is being reflected in the Islamic context, particularly with the modernization of Islam. Specifically within the intellectual developments of Islam. This paradigm shift, this ethical paradigm shift, also characterizes the beginnings of Islamic modernity. Um, there, this dialectic between reason and revelation, which is it that is the foundation of morality, as we saw here, it was resolved in, in, in the sphere of philosophy, according to uh, in the European context, but ethics and morality, the place of reason that was debated amongst the theologians, the mutakallimun. And you had different um, theories, you know, what is it that determines this concept of morality? Is it revelation or is it reason? And you have obviously um, the Mu'tazila who argued that adl as the highest value, moral value is determined by reason whilst you had the traditionists and later on the, um, the Ash'arites arguing that no, it is revelation, religion, through revelation that determines adl, justice. And for reasons, the Ash'arites won the argument in medieval times. Um, arguably to what extent were the Mu'tazila defeated various reasons, but it is with the modernization of Islamic thought where you have a re-adoption of Mu'tazili theology beginning with Abdu, later on people like uh, Fadl al-Rahman, where these people try attempt to reconcile Sharia and religion generally with modernity. But there is an underlying foundation, a theological foundation for this process of reformation of Islam, but particularly Sharia. And this theological foundation now is quite Mu'tazali, quite Mu'tazali. There is no substantial engagement with this theological foundation, this Mu'tazali theological foundation, which represents this paradigm shift, this um, what can be referred to as a shift from heteronymous morality to autonomous morality. Morality that is determined through reason. And you have um, much of contemporary intellectual Islamic thought, um, progressives, liberal Muslims, who try to reconcile the Sharia, Islamic law, with modernity, but assuming a very Mu'tazali 
concept of justice, a concept that is determined through the use of reason. And there's a lot of tensions with this attempt to reconcile this modern understanding of religion, of the Sharia, with modernity, trying to reform it, upholding this concept of justice. And you have very specific scholars now saying that to have a more comprehensive reconciliation between Islam, particularly Sharia, with modernity, you need to revisit those theological foundations of what exactly is it that determines Islamic morality. You can't, it's no longer just useful to try to reconcile specific aspects of Islamic law, Sharia, with modernity, trying to reform them. No. For a more comprehensive reconciliation, you have to revisit that theological foundations, which is a project that is um, very rare. It is only arguably um, in the context of modern Iran with these neo-rationalists, the school of neo-Mu'tazilism, where you do have a re-examination of that theological foundation of Islamic modernization. And it is within this theological, neo-theological re-examination where you can identify this process of nihilism, whereby religion loses its value. And um, specifically, uh, one of the most important neo theologians is Abdul Karim Surush. Um, some of you would have heard or come across his scholarship. There you have a more focused re examination of this theological, this Mu'tazali foundation, which is quite categorically characterized by this objective concept of morality based upon human reason. Morality does not need religion, is not determined by religion. Reason is what determines religion. And, you know, for very specific, you know, I won't go into the details, he now presents a reformulation of that essence of religion, that essence of Islam. And crucially, that Essence is very experiential in nature. By extension, what he considers to be essential, what he considers to be non-essential, what he considers to be accidental to religion is Islamic law. Islamic, there's no longer any need to try to reconcile Islamic law with modernity. Islamic law is not essential to religion. It is that experience of revelation, subtitle of uh, the conference. He explains, he tries to rationally articulate the process of revelation, this concept of khalq al-Qur'an, which he says that the Mu'tazila in the medieval time didn't have the intellectual capabilities to try to elaborate this process of revelation, which he refers to back as, and explains as a, as a, uh, a synonymous with inspiration, ilham. But crucially, he argues that experience, and here he has a very mystical, very Sufi definition of experience, 
um, that is essential to religion. However, what most of the um, mystics, Islamic mystics themselves, emphasized as instrumental to realizing this religious experience was Islamic law. Islam, you couldn't experience the divine without Islamic law, according to majority of the, the, uh, the mystics. But now, he argues, Islamic law is not an essential part of this experience. By extension, it means that you can't experience religion. Religion is devalued. And like I said, if I have time, I'll come back to try to give other examples of how now, based upon human reason, religion is undermined. Undermined. And again, if you remember with Nietzsche, is that you can't have morality without religion. You can't have morality without religion. And it is a crisis. A crisis, I argue, which is being experienced in contemporary modern Islamic thought. How to overcome this crisis? Well, arguably, um, does Ibn al-Arabi's mystical philosophy present, does it, um, uh, how do I say, satisfy these criteria which were alluded to by Nietzsche? Obviously, um, two very important, we heard earlier on, two very important criteria, this concept of the union of opposite values. Very, very important, not just for Ibn al-Arabi's mystical philosophy, but um, mystical mysticism in general, this concept of the, uh, the coincidence of opposites. And very importantly is to see how this mystical philosophy of Ibn al-Arabi now goes beyond this moral worldview. How does Ibn al-Arabi's philosophy present a, a trans-moral or amoral Worldview. How does Ibn al-Arabi now, according to his philosophy of wujud, reformulate this concept of, of morality by looking back at these ontological values of being, non-being, um, wujud, and adam? Um, it's an ontotheological reformulation of morality. Evil is the opposite of good, and nothing emerges from God but good. Evil is, the only, is only the non-existence of good. Al-shar wa adam al-khair. Hence, all good is being wujud, while evil is non-existence. And again, here, this concept, this ontological reformulation has very important um, similarities with somebody who later on will develop Nietzsche's thoughts, Heidegger, um, but uh, to what extent that one can compare the two, that's debatable. The union of opposite values. And again, as we heard earlier on, you see very clearly with Ibn al-Arabi's philosophy, the union of opposite metaphysical values or um, theological concepts like the concept of tanzih and tashbih, and the union, the upholding of both values, 
And again, Ibn al-Arabi's philosophy, to a large extent, elaborates how these values can be unified. Simultaneous affirmation and denial of these values. And the example um, he continually refers to the, the Quranic example. There is nothing here you have the, within the Quranic verse a union of transcendence and imminence. And how are these unified? Not just by upholding those two, but in, um, forgot which Risale, um, he explains how it is through transcendence. To uphold transcendence, God has to become imminent. To uphold tanzih, God has to become imminent. And he has a very specific reading of the first part of this Quranic verse, Laysa Kamithlihi Shay. He has an alternate reading, I think it's Risalat al Jalal wal Jamal, where he says an alternate reading that focuses on the, that transcendent part of this verse. The reading says, There is nothing like his uh, examples. This transcendence is understood with reference to imminence. To be transcendent, God has to become imminent. And he presents an example of that. Affirmation. I'm sure you have always uh, you have all um, come across how important love is for Ibn al-Arabi, most famous of the uh, of, of the verse uh, the, uh, of poetry. It is crucial. It is characteristic of his philosophy. This philosophy of love. But what is instrumental? How? Does one experience love? And it was um, asked earlier on, you know, how does one attain this irfan, this ma'rifah, through love as the root of irfan? But there is another starting point for love. And according to um, the mystics, the Sufis, and um, particularly Ibn Arabi, is that love is now realized, can be realized, through the law, through adherence to the sharia. Again, going back to that famous hadith um, uh, that God loves human beings through the nawafil. And if he comes close to me, I will love him. It is through upholding the nawafil that there can be love. And nawafil are the supererogatory acts of worship. What's crucial here for Ibn al-Arabi is that all human acts represent acts of worship. All human acts are now governed by the law, by the sharia. And it was asked earlier on, what is the Sharia? You can't have that love without the Sharia. Well, it's, it, you can have, but the love of God is now 
realized through the letter of the Sharia. The, the, uh, the Sharia is the Haqiqa, and the Haqiqa is the Sharia. Again, commonly um, juxtaposed as opposites. Well, not opposite, but different values. Sharia is the Mahajjal Bayda, the white pathway. And he states, whoever that leaves the Mahajjal, the Sharia, Halak, is doomed. Sharia, quite specifically, he, he argues, is defined by the ahkam, those rulings that are revealed through the Qur'an, but also the authentic hadith, and he has a very specific way of authenticating hadith through kashf. It is through up, upholding the letter of the sharia, the letter of the law, that now, he says, will um, uh, necessitate tujib al-mahabba through upholding the letter of the law. Those laws, these ahkam, and he says that um, the vast category of the ahkam is al-ibaha, permissibility. But he nevertheless emphasizes upholding the letter of those ahkam that have been revealed. And there is no forbidding that which has been decreed being um, legitimate under the sharia or uh, or forbidding that which has been legal. There is no tahrim or tahleel. That has been determined by the, the ahkam, the revealed ahkam. Sharia, according to him, and here he's very, very uh, ash'arite, is the decree of God, not that of human reason. The decree of God, which is now revealed through the Qur'an and through the sunnah. Sharia is what determines justice. This ahkam is what determines concept of justice for Ibn al-Arabi. It's not reason that determines justice or the sharia. And again, here he emphasizes you can't have haqiqah without upholding the letter of the sharia. You can't have it. You can only realize these tahqiq um, uh, through upholding the letter of the sharia. So there is a very strict methodology by upholding the letter of the sharia in order for one to, to realize, to become a muhaqqiq. It becomes instrumental for Ibn al-Arabi. That's an argument. That's my argument. Um, is Nietzsche relevant for Islam? Well, you have to go back and think. Is Islam, in fact, undergoing the same experience that Christianity underwent in Europe in the process of modernizing? Is Islam undergoing the same kind of challenges, the same traumas that led to the secularization of society in Europe? Is that applicable to Islam? Arguably, yes. It is, and you have a lot of views to the contrary. But same kind of challenges upheld, you know, experienced by Christianity. The, cha the challenges of science, of morality, based upon the authority of autonomous reason. Reason is now being faced by many Muslims. And arguably, this now 
facilitates, this unveils this crisis of nihilism for um, Muslims. Uh, Heidegger says, you know, Nietzsche represents the conclusion of that history of philosophy, beginning with Socrates and Plato, but it ends with Nietzsche. Metaphysics ends with Nietzsche. It is there where you have this history of thinking in binaries. Either one binary is, um, is privileged or affirmed over another. This now comes to its conclusion with Nietzsche, where you see this philosophy of contradictions, of opposites in the philosophy of Nietzsche. How do you come up with a new way of living without these values of truth, of good, of the beauty? How? And again, arguably, even Heidegger, those who would develop their thought by reflecting upon Nietzsche later on, he begins to start adopting very mystical um, language towards the end of his philosophy. But arguably, it is within, uh, if nihilism, if the argument is correct, if nihilism is going to be experienced, if the death of God is going to be experienced in its Islamic context, then arguably, after the death of God, there is a return. It becomes necessary to look back to Ibn al-Arabi. Not out of interest, not out of love. It represents an intellectual necessity to go back and look at the philosophy of Ibn al-Arabi. He, I argue, represents this concept of anatheism, the return to God after the death of God. But intellectually, it is crucially only after the death of God that one can return back to religion. Thank you.